So our own Pastor Kevin has been here long enough where we're kicking him out to go on a sabbatical. He's going on a sabbatical this summer. And uh, we we do a great job. We do this ministry moment. So I wanted to have Kevin come up and kind of share with you what his summer is going to look like on his sabbatical. So I have two questions for you. All right. Uh, Tell us what what you're doing and then tell us why you're doing it. Got it. All right. So... um you can tell it's a holiday out there. First service was packed. Um, so anyway, so uh, yeah, I'm going on sabbatical, and we're leaving. We, I'm uh, Pete West, and I. Pete West is this, the uh, director of self-sustaining enterprises, um, and uh, leaving four weeks from yesterday, and we'll be gone for two months. And so a sabbatical for professors or pastors is really supposed to be a time, a well-earned time of. Uh, just rest, but recovery from all of the the rigors of ministry and uh, an emotional kind of just an emotional break. Um, but uh, we are going to use that time to ride our bicycles across the country. And uh, I was telling the, the elders when I kind of officially requested this sabbatical um, was that uh, as par for the par for Kevin's course is that rest and recovery, that's kind of like what I like to do. Um, Pete had come to me last fall and he said, uh, hey, I've had it as a bucket list item for years to bike across the country. And he said, I know that you would like to do that too. And he said, I turn 60 this, you know, in this coming summer, you turn 55. Let's just go do it now, uh, since we can. And uh, I love the idea. Of course, it didn't. I didn't. He didn't have to twist my arm to think that was a great idea. And so. Uh, we started kind of strategizing without really even telling anybody what we were going to do. And so he said, okay, first of all, we have to get permission from our wives, his wife, Donna, my wife, Kim. If you don't know my wife, Kim, she's a keyboardist up here. And, uh, so, uh, for me, I just went to Kim and said, Hey, well, how would you feel about me biking across country uh, with Pete? And she's like, uh, I don't care. Do whatever you want. I'll see you when you get back. Uh, and uh, I said, well, you sure you're going to be all right? And she's like, well, you know, there's plenty of loaded guns uh, right in our house, so I'll be fine, right? Uh, there's four of them right there in the, in the nightstand, so I'll, don't worry about me. So I talked to Pete a couple of days later. He said, okay, I, I accomplished my mission. He said that was the most expensive negotiation I've ever entered into. It cost him a river cruise in Europe to talk Donna into letting him go. But then we had to, then we started thinking about, well, how's this going to work with you, you being gone from church? I didn't, I don't have that kind of vacation time. So we got the personnel policy out and right there it said uh, full-time pastoral staff are eligible for a two-month sabbatical every seven years. And I'm finishing up my eighth year here at Grace Chapel. So that worked uh, out just really well. Well, sabbatical is supposed to be more than just go lay out on the beach and veg out and don't do anything. And so it's, it's supposed to include some sort of reflection times, either educational kind of a piece, learning something along the way while you're resting. And so uh, Pete and I are going to be doing two things along the way. One is um, to take this opportunity to further hone um, 
marketplace ministry, not only in Grace Chapel, but uh, how we extend that outwardly also. And so, you know, as you hear often, our marketplace ministry, our ministry to the marketplace and training others to do that is just part of our DNA. And that's my major role here at Grace Chapel is to be the pastoral presence over all of that, just like Pete is the organizational presence over self-sustaining enterprises and our business trees. And so uh, along our two months on our bicycles, we're going to just be doing a lot, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of pondering and discussing all of that and blogging back and forth um, about that experience and about what we're thinking about along the way. So um, that's kind of part A of what we're going to be doing. And part B is... um, as a fundraiser for one of our other uh, marketplace ministry uh, projects in Nigeria, at our location in Nigeria, they grow a crop called acha. It's a grain, and it's grown in that part of the world specifically because it can survive the, the soil in that area. And it would be like we would use wheat or barley uh, in our country. Um, and so there at our, at our ministry there, our economic zone in Nigeria, they produce that and they sell it. But they just harvest it, cut it down, and, and sell it. Well, if they had a machine to thresh it, they would be able to sell the actual grain at much higher prices. Jeff was telling me up to 10 times the profit, but they don't have the money to buy the machine. And so through our bike trip, uh, we'll be raising money, taking pledges to purchase an Acha threshing machine. There's some pictures of it out there in the lobby. I can tell you more about it um, so that they can maximize their profits so they can tenfold their profits um, there in Nigeria. And so uh, that's kind of part two of why we'll be doing what we're doing. Yep. Um, and we'll be tracking you all along the way, so we'll keep yeah. little pins out there. Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a map out there. We'll, we'll put that up somewhere, and Kim, each week, we'll kind of update with a push pin you know, along the way. Plus, we'll be blogging, like I said. I can, we'll, I'll share that uh, IP address so that you can kind of click on there and, and just see what we're thinking about and our ponderings and, and what we're experiencing and, and all of that. Uh, and the progress along the way. So, yeah. so if you want to talk to Pastor Kevin more about this, he'll be here for, when do you leave? Uh, four weeks from today. Okay, so. four weeks from today. If you want to talk to him more about it, um, there's no more room on the trip. Um, and you don't want to go on this trip unless you prepare for the last year. But uh, if you want to know more about the trip, you're going to be out here in the four Yeah, and, then the, and, uh, and the, your family news bulletin. The insert there has the, the Saturday serve on one side and then information and a pledge card if you would like to be a part of the fundraising aspect of that. Yeah, well, I think we're trying to raise about $20,000 to buy all this equipment, build the building. This will literally transform people's lives because we'll be allowing people in the community to bring their ACHA there. We'll husk it for them for a very, very minimal price just to keep the machine going. But then they can turn around and figure if you sold it for a dollar and then we husk it for you for a dollar and you could sell it for $10. And then imagine if you held on to it for five or six months and there was no more Acha around and you were able to take that and sell it then, you sell it for even a much greater price. So that's what we're trying to do, a co-op in the community to help them to gain more resources uh, for what they're growing. So thanks a lot, Kevin. Good to, good to hear all that. Good morning. Good morning. I am... I'm Andy Keimer. I am the pastor of children's and youth ministry here 
at Grace Chapel and hearing Kevin's story, I think we all have some sort of inner barometer that tells us how, like, this is too much when it comes to exercise. Uh, like, my third year of teaching, we had a group of teachers that decided they wanted to ride their bikes uh, to school, to work. And I was like, yeah, I'm about that. I'll do that. And then I realized it was round trip 11 miles. And I was like, I can't. Apparently my barometer for bike trips is 11 miles, whereas Kevin's is anywhere under the 5,000 mile range. So it's a little bit too much. I also was joking with Pastor Kevin that next year when they plan their cross-country trip, um, the idea of a rickshaw. Right? If any of you out there have been just clamoring at riding a uncomfortable wooden bench on wheels while Pastor Kevin pulls you at about 1.3 miles per hour across the northern Idaho frontier, I, yeah, I think we can make that work for next year. Um, before I, I jump into today's message, I want to uh, recognize just a couple of things. First and foremost, what this weekend is. This weekend is Memorial Day, and it's an opportunity for our nation to honor the men and women that have given the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have the freedoms that we so often take for granted. So on behalf of Grace Chapel, I just want to give a very loud thank you and just a round of applause for what this weekend is. Um, and also, real quick, as I said, I, I am the youth pastor. At every first service, uh, we do kind of the same thing that goes on in here across the parking lot in the Student Impact Center. Uh, we have donuts. We have food, which is real important to youth. That's what draws them. I ask for feedback. And they're like, well, the donut selection this week was a little, little, you know, can we get more sprinkles? But we have donuts. We have bagels. We have a student worship band. And, and we lead a message that we try to direct specifically toward middle school and high school kids. And we challenged our youth this summer that typically summer is that time where people, you know, kind of check out a little bit. But it's, it's literally the time for youth where they have the most margin in their life. They don't have school. So we're challenging them to get connected more. Um, um, and we want to encourage them to come over and check it out. We split our middle school and high school within tables. We have table leaders that allow for discussion. And we know we have a lot of youth that come in here and are connected with their parents. But if they're looking for more or if parents, you are looking more for them, encourage them to come check it out first service. And if they don't like it, I'll just blame the table leaders. Tell them they gotta, they got to pick it up. Um, Doug Newton is a pastor of 40 years. He's authored 12 books, and for a 15-year stretch, he was the senior editor of an award-winning Christian magazine called Light and Life. And he had this to say about the familiarity of Scripture. He says, What if the commonplace understanding of a Bible story or a well-known Scripture passage is the very thing keeping us from seeing the text in a new, life-transforming way? We all find ourselves facing this problem when we study the Bible. We believe Scripture is living and powerful, but many of us, after a genuine encounter with God, followed by faithful Bible study and many sermons, become so familiar with Scripture that it's lost its impact. And we're in a series called Come and See, a study on the life of Jesus. And a lot of these stories of Jesus we have heard for many, many years. And Jeff has done an incredible job throughout the first several Sundays of giving a new perspective on these stories and taking these stories and, and breaking them down so we can apply them to our life. And it's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk about Jesus and the miracles that he performed. And that quote, that quote sums up a lot of us, that we've heard these stories over and over 
but it doesn't sum up everyone. So whether you've heard the stories of the miracles or the stories of Jesus a hundred times, a thousand times ever since you were a little kid, or you've never heard them, my hope today is that you can leave today with a practical sense of how to study these miracles and how that we can still, even though we've heard them hundreds of times, we can draw out a lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. If you look in the bulletin, there's an insert. It has the 37 miracles of Jesus in chronological order. Our awesome office administrator, Jodine Snyder, was nice enough to shrink this down and put it on there. If you don't know Jodine, here's how you find out who Jodine is. You go out into the lobby and just listen for a woman laughing. And you just follow that laugh. Eventually it will lead you to Jodine. You probably won't know what she's laughing about. There's a good chance she doesn't know what she's laughing about. But you have just met Jodine Snyder. But she was nice enough to shrink this down. And it's, it's chronological order of the miracles that he performed. It also has the scripture or the scriptures within the multiple gospels that it's found. And my goal this morning is I'm just going to look at two miracles. I'm going to look at the first two miracles. And I'm, I'm going to pose three questions that we then can use to extract a lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us and that you can also use when you study these and read them throughout the week. Because miracles of Jesus are, you know, oftentimes we read about it, we hear about it, and it's just kind of that story is awesome and it is supposed to just increase our faith just because how awesome the story is or what he did. But when we really study them, the miracles are so much more. That Jesus is giving us so much truth and insight and things that we can take and apply to our life. You know, understand that these every single one of these miracles on the list, you could do an entire sermon on just one miracle. Some miracles you could do, you know, a two-part series. And some miracles could be an entire six-week series just on that miracle because they're so rich in theology and depth and knowledge and truth. But my goal this morning, like I said, is to pose three questions and look at one aspect of the miracle that we can draw a lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. The questions I want to pose to the miracles are this. The first one is, what kingdom values does the miracle reveal? What kingdom values? So uh, as opposed to worldly values, right? The world is telling us this is valuable. No, but God is telling us this is valuable. So what kingdom values does the miracle reveal? The second question, with those truths in mind, how should our beliefs change? And the third question is, how then should our actions change? That's the ultimate goal within this series, is to take what Jesus is saying, is doing, and, and just showing us, and apply that to our life. Um, the first miracle I'm going to look at is the first one on the list there. It comes from John chapter 2, verse 1 and 11. It's when Jesus turns water into wine. So I'm going to read through the miracle, and then I'm going to go back, like I said, I'm going to look at just one aspect of that miracle and really, really break it down. So Scripture says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. 
When the jars had been filled to the brim, Jesus then said, Now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign of Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is one of those miracles that, I mean, we could study this for five or six weeks. There's so many things going on in this miracle. But I want to look at the aspect of John 2, uh, verse 7, where it says, The servants filled the pots to the brim. In the King James Version, that is the translation, that they filled the pots to the brim. So I want to look at that aspect and the fact that Jesus was very intentional in sending the servants to get the water. Because Jesus, he could perform the miracle however he wanted. He could have snapped his finger and had plenty of wine. He could have enough wine for a thousand weddings. Right? Some of you are thinking, like, I've been to some of those weddings where there's just, like, he would have enough wine for all of those weddings. He could have just snapped his fingers and out of nothing, he could have had wine. But he was very intentional in sending the servants to go fill up those jars. Now let's talk about the jars. These are stone jars, could fill, or could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. When completely filled, could easily weigh 200 to 250 pounds. So how did they fill these pots up? Right. I'm a youth pastor, so I have to like you know eliminate the obvious. There was no hose. There wasn't a hose, right? That would probably be the first question. Like, would just get the ho- turn the hose on, fill the hose up. No, we couldn't fill up the pots with the hose. Right? There was no hose. The second thing, okay, they carry those pots to the well and fill the pots up and carry the pots back. Right? Remember, the pots were filled to the brim. There is no way they were going to carry a 250-pound pot of water and not spill any water. Just with five-gallon buckets, I'll walk this slow trying to carry water. And apparently, this does nothing because the weather in the bucket is like a tsunami. There's just waves. Water's going everywhere. I get out to the bush. I'm trying to water. And there's like eight ounces of water in this bucket. So the most logical thing they could do is go to the well with a smaller bucket or an animal skin canvas and take multiple trips back to the stone jar over and over and over. I have a hard time sometimes carrying in a gallon of milk from the van after grocery shopping, right? It's just big and awkward. They did this over and over and over and filled it up. And Jesus was intentional about this. You see, here's the significance in this. This isn't a miracle of multiplication. Jesus didn't take what wasn't there and have something appear. Right? He turned the water that he had present that the servants brought him. This is a miracle of transformation. He chose to remedy the wine shortage by taking what was brought to him and changing the quality of what was brought to him and not the quantity of what was brought to him. And this is the lesson for us. This is where we start to narrow down what kingdom value can we learn. This is a lesson for us. The amount of wine, not literally speaking, 
right? Some of you are like, well, what kind of wine are we talking about here, Pastor Andy? Not, not literal wine. The amount of wine or good things in our life. And not worldly good things. Not things such as, you know, finances, riches, houses, cars, friends, and even our health. But, but godly, kingdom good things. Such as contentment. Such as peace. Such as joy. Such as understanding. Such as perseverance. The ability to overcome. The ability to forgive those type of good things. So the amount of wine or good things that we have in our life is dependent on the amount of water or things that need to be transformed that is brought to Jesus. Let me say that again. The amount of good things, godly good things, in our life is dependent on the amount of water or things that need to be changed in our life that is brought to Jesus. And that is how we can answer that first question. This miracle, this one little aspect of this miracle teaches us the importance and the value of prayer. Because how do we bring things to Jesus? We bring it to Him in prayer. These servants filled the water pots up to the brim. They very easily could have filled it three quarters, half. Right? Think of our prayer life. Is our prayer life filled to the brim? Or is it three quarters full? Is it half full? Some water pots might be empty. We might go through seasons where we don't even think about it and we're not bringing anything to Jesus. You see, prayer is so valuable. There's documentation, there's research, there's been analysis of the greatest spiritual revivals and spiritual crusades throughout U.S. history. And the one thing that they always find with every single one, prior to those events, the group of people that were central to that event occurring, met together and they filled their water pots to the brim with prayer. You can look at the Great Awakening, which was a spiritual renewal of the entire nation, the, the colonies, okay, in the mid to early 18th century. And it, it was a season in the church where some believers were starting to feel disassociated with the church and the routine. And they felt there was this sense of complacency and no one was really living out their faith and they wanted to do something about it. So these group of individuals got together, they started to meet, and their meetings were characterized by great fervor and emotion in prayer. That's how they started the Great Awakening. Billy Graham in 1949, he had started doing, you know, some missions, some crusades in 46, but in 1949 he had scheduled to do a three-week crusade out in Los Angeles. They had a tent built that could hold 5,000 people in Three weeks, 5,000 people, Los Angeles, it's going to be huge. In later interviews, they asked Billy Graham, what was the most important thing when it came to preparation for your crusades, for your mission? And his answer was, his answer was very simple. He said, prayer, prayer, and more prayer. So prior to the 1949 crusade in Los Angeles, Billy Graham's team is praying. They have a thousand prayer teams in Los Angeles praying over the space, praying over God's presence to be there. And what was supposed to be three weeks with a 5,000 person tent turned into eight weeks of a crusade because people never stopped coming. And the 5,000 person tent had to be nearly doubled to a tent of 9,000 people. Billy Graham, in a documentary, states that it got to a point where he didn't know, he had nothing left to talk about. He had given all his sermons, but yet people were still coming. So they were writing sermons the night before. He spoke to over 350,000 people 
during that eight weeks. Billy Graham at one at one talk in South Korea spoke to 1.1 million people. Billy Graham also visited Moscow during the time of the Cold War where the U.S. government told him it's not a good idea for you to go. He also knew going to Moscow would just kind of play into the Russians' hands because they wanted to use him as propaganda. But yet, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he spoke in Moscow, a country that did not think highly of Americans. A country that is known as an atheist country. But he had 155,000 people come to hear him speak. And of those 155,000 people, it said that probably a third, almost half of them at the altar call came up and gave their life to Christ. And he says it all started with prayer. His crusade director, a gentleman by the name of Sterling Houston, wrote a book called Crusade Evangelism in the Local Church. And he states in it very clearly that prayer is the first priority. People, methods, and materials are instruments, and it is only through prayer that these instruments become effective by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And what's true of these grand, huge events is true in our life. It's true of restored relationships, restored marriages, rescued addicts, stories of redemption, stories of hope. It all starts with prayer. Whether you're young, whether you're old, right? We need to bring our water pot filled to the brim to Jesus. The things we need transformed in our life, we need to bring them to Him, filled to the top. And we don't stop. We don't stop praying until we experience an incredible transformation, either in our world or how we see it. Because the lesson that we're learning from this little aspect of this miracle is the value and the power of prayer. And what you bring to Jesus, He can transform into anything. Six years ago, there was, there was a, a young man, and, and prior to this, I, I taught him in middle school. I coached him in middle school, and then I coached him four years Mason football when I taught there. Uh, but six years ago, he was home visiting from college. He was a starting defensive back for the University of Indianapolis. It was his junior year, and he was home visiting. He was at a graduation party, uh, and he wanted to go jump in the pool. And he looked, and he saw kids playing at one end of the pool. And he thought, kids, that must be the shallow end so he dove in the opposite end and um, sorry and what he thought was the deep end was the shallow end and he hits his head and breaks his neck and he has had the chance to come talk to our impact group uh, last year and he said within three seconds he realized he was paralyzed and within five seconds the question he was asking himself is am i going to die in this pool face down Luckily, there were people around. They pulled him out of the pool. Right? They were able to call the ambulance. In the next six to eight hours, it, it's, it's a story that I can't even imagine. He can't feel his arms. He can't feel his legs. But he is coherent and he is conscious through this entire ordeal. He is coherent. He's conscious enough to hear the doctors tell his parents, this injury is so grave, this might be the last time you speak to your son. The first miracle is they take him into surgery. They're able to stabilize him. He comes out of surgery. But the diagnosis is a complete spinal cord fracture, which means he is a quadriplegic. 
Right? There's nothing they can do. There's nothing the doctors they can do. They start prepping the parents, hey, would you be willing to do a PSA announcement about diving into pools? They start prepping parents about therapy and about how this is your life now. They start prepping this young man who was an incredible athlete, had his entire life in front of him, that you're going to need your parents and people to take care of you for the rest of your life. End of day three, day four, he starts to feel a muscle spasm in his quad, but yet the nurses tell him, nope, that's muscle memory. That's going to happen. He feels it over and over, and the doctors come in, and they rush him into surgery. And what the doctors describe as the most outside-of-the-box surgery they've ever performed, and nothing short or less of a miracle, this young man comes out of surgery with complete feeling in his arms and legs. They begin to tell him, you know, hey, it could be six to eight weeks before you're able to walk. It could be a really long time. But within one week of him breaking his neck and having the diagnosis, my wife and I went to visit him. And here he is walking down the hallway with his dad making fun of him, saying he's walking like a baby giraffe. But that was just part of the family dynamic. But when... When they did a news story on this young man, they asked the mom what was going on during all of this. And her response was prayer, prayer, and more prayer. You see, the value of prayer is just unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And we can take that little spot in that message of filling it to the brim and learn about the value of prayer. So our challenge with this lesson is to assess our prayer life. The second question and the third question is how does it change our belief and how does it change our action? And that's ultimately up to all of us. It's up to us to assess our prayer life and to prioritize it where it needs to be. The second miracle comes from John 4, 46 through 54. And it's the second one on there where he heals the official son. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to read the miracle and then I'm going to approach it just from one aspect and try to draw out the lesson from that. So it says in Scripture, As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of the servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that this was the very time Jesus had told him, Your son will live. And his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. So I want to look at this miracle from a timeline. Okay, first thing we need to know is Capernaum is roughly 18 miles from Cana. So this, this official, let's just say, wakes up Monday morning, realizes that Jesus is, is close enough within walking distance. He's desperate. He doesn't know what else to do. He doesn't know who Jesus is, but yet he's heard stories about how he can perform miracles. So he walks 18 miles to find Jesus. And then what literally is described is probably a one-minute conversation. Jesus tells him to go home. Your son will live. But what we can tell is that this miracle actually occurs over two days. Because when he meets the servants, the servants tell him that his 
son was healed yesterday. So once Jesus tells this official that go home, he doesn't go home immediately. He is reassured that this prophet or who this person is, Jesus, has assured him that his son will live. Almost as if a doctor has shared with him information. I give you information that, yes, your son will live. This, this official is probably thinking, okay, I'm relieved. It's probably going to be a really long you know, process. He may not fully recover, but Jesus can kind of see the future. He tells me he will live. Um, but the next day when he's walking home, the servants tell him, no, yesterday, yesterday at 1 o'clock, your son was healed. The fever was gone. He is going to live. And it's this exact moment that this official realizes who Jesus is and how powerful the word of God is. Because the moment Jesus spoke it, it happened. Because God's word isn't just informative. God's word is performative. Meaning when it is said, it is done. And this official realized it in that moment. If you read scripture, it says that he believed and his entire house believed. Because the first time he believed, it was just information being told that his son was going to be okay. The second time he believed, he realized how powerful the word of God is. And that Jesus was God. And the moment he said it, his son was healed. See, the kingdom value we can learn here is that we have to adopt a higher view of the word of God. This miracle unveils something that we often don't appreciate enough. That the greatest demonstration of God's deity, God's power, is the fact that he can just speak things into existence. His word is just so powerful. that It's not just informative, it's performative. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is powerful. And when applied and given authority in our life, it can do incredible, incredible things. But here's the struggle. We live in a society, we live in a culture that is literally telling us that the word of God in the Bible is irrelevant. Last year in 2018, GQ magazine, which has about a million subscribers a month, published an article that said that was titled 21 Books We Should No Longer Read. And on it was books like Catcher in the Rye, Huckleberry Finn, Lord of the Rings, some other literary classics. And basically what they were saying is, here's, here's what culture is now. Here's what society is now. Those books don't align with it, so they're irrelevant. And also on that list was the Bible. Was the Bible. See, we, we live in a society, we live in a world that is taking our feelings, our thoughts, the truths of society, and we're applying those to the Bible. And when they don't align to the Bible, we say the Bible is irrelevant. And I would argue that that's the very reason our world struggles with sin. That's the very reason we have so many issues throughout this world. is because we are taking our life and wrapping it around the Bible instead of taking the Bible and wrapping it around our life. 
The Word of God is powerful. There is a book written called More Than a Carpenter, and in that book there's a quote by a psychiatrist named J.T. Fisher, and this is what he states about the Word of God. If you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and, you, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimism, mental health, and contentment. Once again, the Word of God is powerful. We learn in this that it is truth. It is authoritative. It is performative. God's Word isn't just information on how we should live our life. It is that also, but it's so much more. God's Word accomplishes His purpose. God's Word has a plan for us that is said to be good, pleasing, and perfect. God's Word creates faith. It causes spiritual rebirth. It allows us to discern. It allows us to expose our inner thoughts. When we have God's Word in us, we're able to bear fruit. And most importantly, God's Word allows us to defeat the enemy. You see, this miracle shows us that the exact moment that the Father believed Jesus was God. The exact moment He understood how powerful the Word of God is. And I feel like oftentimes we need that moment again to realize how powerful the Word of God is in our life. One of the most important things that the Word of God says is about who you are. It says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's masterpiece. That's God's Word, and it's true because He said it. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to perform to be a masterpiece. You are His masterpiece. In 1 Peter it says, But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This isn't informative information. This is performative words spoken by God. He has chosen us. We are His masterpiece. So we ask that question, what's the kingdom value? is that God's Word is powerful. God's Word is authoritative. God's Word is the truth. And God's Word is amazing. And we need to apply that to our life. In closing here, those were just two miracles. Those were just individual aspects within that miracle. Right? I, I encourage you and pray that you, you take those miracles, read them, read them as a family, read them with your kids, and start to decide what you can learn. What kingdom value do you learn? And then how does that change your belief? Right? As I said earlier, oftentimes miracles are just associated with increasing our faith, but Jesus is performing these miracles, and there's so much more. There's so many rich lessons in there. And if we can take those lessons and apply them to our life, then we are just being more Christ-like. I hope this week, I pray this week, that you're, you literally say to yourself, I need to fill up my pot. I need to fill up my pot, and I need to take that 
to Jesus. Right? Just like the miracle says, right? Jesus will change the quality of that. He will transform that. I also pray that during this week you're going to have moments of frustration. You're going to need guidance. You're going to need something. And I pray that you go to the Word of God because of how powerful it is. And sometimes that step is easy, but the second step sometimes is hard to rest in its truth. Sometimes it's, it's easy to read it. That's what it says. But it's hard sometimes to rest in its truth. But rest assured that this miracle shows that the moment it is spoken and it's been spoken in the Bible, it is true, it is powerful, and it can shape your life. There's 35 more miracles on there. Feel free to look at the first two miracles too because there's so much going on. But those three questions again, what kingdom values do I learn? How does it change my beliefs and how does it change my actions? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the fact that we can gather here in this place and we have this freedom that was given to us by so many men and women throughout the years of our armed forces. And we just appreciate that. We love that. Lord, and I pray we reflect on that as we're spending time with family this weekend. Lord, we need you. We need you. And I pray that we bring the things we need transformed to you. I pray everything that we need transformed, we bring to you. We bring to you everything in prayer. And we allow you to start to transform our lives. Lord, I also pray that as we're seeking guidance or we're seeking truth or we're going through, you know, the debates of what the world is saying, that we seek your word and we understand how powerful it is, how true it is, how authoritative it is. Lord, I pray as this week unfolds that we just take the gifts, we take the things that you have blessed us with and we use them to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I hope everyone has an incredible week.